G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne with the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation. We come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. Two features today, one about what is happening at our universities with the latest figures showing that less than half the jobs at universities are permanent. We follow this with a look at why industrial manslaughter laws are important with a particular focus on the promised industrial manslaughter laws in Victoria. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Dr Alison Barnes is the new National President of the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU. She spoke to us about the scourge of casualisation and short-term contracts for her members and the NTEU's focus for change for 2019. Now, in the past, people would have thought that uh, getting a job at a university, people's lives would have been made. But in actual fact, there's been major changes going on, hasn't there? Yeah, there certainly has, Annie. It's, um, I'm not sure if you saw the figures last week um, released by the Department of Education and Training um, that show for the first time the majority of all work done by employees at universities is precarious, or it's casual, or it's fixed term in nature which is um, a rather, I think, damning indictment of employment conditions in the sector. Now, you've had personal experience of this, haven't you? Because you used to work at, as a senior lecturer at, the, at Macquarie University and it, uh, you would have been a permanent and your assistant, but then you would have had a whole staff of casuals or uh, short-term uh, employment people. Absolutely true. I should say before telling you about my own experience in um, at Macquarie, I actually started my academic career as a casual. I worked at New South Wales University and Sydney University when I was finishing my PhD. So I know firsthand what it's like um, to be employed casually when your income and your job security uh, is precarious. But you're right, when I worked at Macquarie, um, I taught one of the biggest first year cores. So we had between you know, 1,500 and 2,000 students enrolled each semester. and Which is a staggering amount. It, yeah, it's a staggering amount. And myself and my teaching assistant were the only people who had employment security who worked on that unit. So we had between, I don't know, 22 and 25 casuals each semester working on that unit, which gives you a real insight into um, the, the difficulties associated with that um, with casually employed staff. Now, let's start with what that's like trying to run a, uh, a course. What, what are the negatives for a university and for students for that to be the case? Well, in a course that size, you really face the whole range of student and staff experiences. So because you've got that volume of, of students, you have more staff, more sorry, more students, for example, who are, suffer issues with anxiety or depression. They're in their first year of university, so they're coming to groups with university studies and what that, that means for them. And so they need a higher degree of kind of pastoral care to manage to help them through that process. Now, that's difficult 
difficult for students when people are employed casually because they might not be on campus when they want to talk to them, so it can make that face-to-face contact more difficult. It's also difficult for the casual because they often feel an enormous sense of responsibility for students' well-being. So you've got a student who might come and confide in you that you know they're feeling terribly anxious or depressed with an assignment and you want to help them through, but because you're employed casually, it's, you're just not around as much to do that. So there's pressure... Uh, I suppose through helping the students through the the difficult expe- experience of university they might be having because you're you're not on campus all the time like like mm-hmm. I would have been for example. So, but so also, what, what you're touching on there is that it's actually a vocational work, really, in a sense. Yeah, I think for 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 most people who work in universities, it's absolutely a. Of vocation, people are committed to to their students. They're committed to teaching, and they're committed to research. And you know, people take those the issues that that stem from research and teaching really seriously. So I suppose when casual see students um, in distress, they feel a personal responsibility towards the student. They often also are isolated from the university more broadly, so it might generate, I suppose, concerns. Are they providing, do they know the correct services the university offers? How do they reach out to those services? So that can create additional stress and, I suppose, additional workload for everybody in the sense that you're you're trying to manage the casual or help the casual through that experience and also help the student through that experience. That can be taxing for everybody. I mean, I've actually worked I'll have to say doing um, teaching training at a, that sort of level, but yeah. in a private college. And, the, and yeah. I was just going to touch on the incredible amount of correcting and yes. how underpaid people are for doing that kind of work. Problem. I think the, the 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 deadlines with which people are supposed to mark assignments in an essay in are so tight, and particularly when you're dealing, as I'm talking about with the unit that I taught on, with students in their first year, they need an enormous amount of help um, with. How to write essays, you know. I think that the difference between school and university is a big jump for many students, so they need all of that kind of feedback, and that's all very time consuming. And I think, by and large, many of um, many casuals do that out of their goodwill. You know, they spend enormous amounts of time working on helping students with their assignments, and that that comes at a personal cost. So the universities, universities, I think, demand a lot from casuals who in return get, you know, insecurious and precarious employment. Now, moving on to what that insecure work actually caused, the trouble it causes people. I mean, you've already touched on a little bit of it because there's a lot of free work going on quite clearly. But on the other hand, let's be pragmatic about this. People live in a world where they need uh, money to pay for... uh, Housing for Absolutely. all these sort of things. Future planning is impacted for people. Absolutely. So you get the, all the issues that we just talked around in terms of all the free work, the pastoral care. But the other great thing is that you have no security of your income. So that makes it really difficult. When I was talking to my tutors who worked on my unit, for example, in applying for mortgages for home loans because you don't have that security of income makes planning for holidays very difficult, you know, planning to take time off to spend with your family and your friends, enormously difficult. Think of all the casuals at this time of year who are, who are moving into the Christmas period with no income. 
That's um, exactly it, right. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that uh, universities that are supposed to be the standard of uh, one of the cornerstones of our civilization, as it were, uh, leaving people high and dry, effectively. Yeah, exactly. So they, you know, people struggle over this period to be able to afford to to to, to be able to afford things. You know, to be able to 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 buy people presents and all the things that you might people like might like to do over Christmas. But it's also people feel reluctant to ever knock back work because you're not sure what your income's going to be. So you feel like you have to say yes to any work opportunity you get, and that can also lead to. Intense work intensity, you know. So I have, for example, uh, tutors who were working at across, you know, four or four universities, um, and in- incredible workloads because they might get essays from my unit at the same time they get essays from another university uh, due. So people don't knock back work. So there's the kind of paradox where you can get this real underemployment, which is very stressful financially, and you don't know how much work you're going to get. Or you say yes to everything because you don't know how much work you're going to get, and that, that's incredibly difficult to manage the demands of that work. Now, the NTEU has decided that uh, that you're running a major campaign around this insecure work, aren't you? Yes, we certainly are. It's part of our Change the Rules campaign. Our focus will be on insecure work and bringing that, I suppose, to the public's attention to, so people are aware of the difficulties our casuals face. We also, uh, I suppose, campaign a lot at campuses and look for things like enterprise bargaining agreements to improve conditions of casuals. And I suppose over the next year or two, we are building a really strong campaign to seek to decrease casualisation across our sector because the human costs are too high for those who perform it. I think they're too high for universities too. Now we have to move to something else that's happening within this sector which is obviously tied to upper management becoming much more managerial and less attuned to traditional university uh, milieu. Uh, This business about block teaching and separating teaching and research which uh, is a a very interesting approach. I presume it's a money-saving idea. Uh, Well, block teaching... uh, Block teaching... If you don't build proper buffers in for staff, block teaching is extraordinarily wearing. I went to the NTU in Melbourne last week, had drinks for a Christmas party for our casual um, members, and there was a member there who was working at VU, and he had four-week contracts in line with block teaching, so he was employed for four weeks. And the, the stress associated with that, the lack of downtime with you know preparing results and like it doesn't these things unless there are proper allowances you know students get sick students have difficulties that they encounter unless the the kind of buffers are built um into block teaching that make those sorts of that sort of work manageable they're just people just burn out they're exhausting Oh no. yeah, I oh, know. It it just doesn't. Uh, what's going on upstairs is not bearing much relationship to what's going on downstairs. Um, and uh, you, you're at the NTU are saying that uh, you support the concept of linking funding to job security. Well, I think part of the reason job insecurity arises is because universities are so underfunded. You know, so management, university management seek to. 
deal with peaks in trough in demand by casualising their workforce. But it's a it's a, a it's a short term strategy because it undermines the working conditions of the, the casuals who perform it. It creates stress for the more permanently employed staff who work alongside it. It means that you get a kind of a teaching only workforce by a proxy and all of those things can be, you know, very, very I think risky for universities. Universities are interested or should be in their students' well being, in the quality of their research and the like. And so I think universities should also be concerned about the huge numbers of casuals they employed and that in part stems from the funding cuts that universities that and the tertiary education sector is, you know, continually faced with. So it's a huge uh, money spinner, or ex- they call it an export uh, uh, education as an export property for Australia, but you're saying that uh, uh, it's a bit of a leaky boat. The- oh, I think it's a completely leaky, leaky boat. Universities should be focused on you know, developing fantastic teaching and fantastic research, and, in sh- and, and through lack of funding, ensuring that universities are dependent on international students for generating revenue um, builds in problems. You know, the problem of casualisation um, is, is one of the many problems that I think universities face because of inadequate funding. So we can expect the NTU to be uh, on the hustings next year. You certainly can. You <laughs> certainly can. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for talking to me, Annie. I really appreciate it. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. You are listening to Stick Together, the only national program focusing on worker stories, union news and social justice issues. In our second feature today, we cross to a speech given about industrial manslaughter given at the Unitarian Church in Melbourne recently. We thank our fellow programmers at 3CR from the Unitarian Half Hour for this great speech. Renata Lasalina is uh, well known for the newsletter that comes out of the Victorian Trades Hall, Just Ask Renata. Well, look, every year on April 28th, the Trades Hall Council and unions around Australia and the world stop to mark International Workers' Memorial Day. This is a day of great significance to the union movement globally. On that day, workers in Victoria stand united with workers in every country to mourn the dead and to commit to fight for the living. Unfortunately, in the last few years, it's also been picked up by some of our regulators that call it Health and Safety Day or whatever they want to call it, and even the employers, which I think is a little ironic. Now, on that day, each incident in which a worker was killed in traumatic circumstances in Victorian workplaces is read out. We've developed a bit of a ritual over the past few years, whereby, as each of these is read out, a member of the Trades Hall brings out often a young person, I should say, brings out footwear representing that person and places it on a stool. Finally, a single flower is placed on the last stool to represent the many more who have died as a result of work-related disease. In fact, just last week, Jeff and I attended the funeral of an old school friend, Stephen, who unfortunately lost his life due to exposure to asbestos, which is everywhere in our society. He was 63 years old. Victoria has a long and shameful history of industrial deaths. Creswick Mine disaster in 1882 when 22 miners were drowned. 
the Spotswood sewer disaster in 1895 when six were killed. In 1937, the Dallison Colliery explosion in Montagui, 13 were killed. The Westgate Bridge in 1970, 35 killed. Still Australia's worst industrial disaster. 1996, the Kew Cottages, nine people killed. The Esso Longford gas explosion in 1998, when two were killed. And I might add too that when the 20th anniversary was marked in September... I read, and I think the union might might even have said, that even then, ESSO has yet to publicly express regret that they did this. They have not accepted responsibility. The Grocon wall collapse in 2013, where it wasn't workers who were killed, it was was three young passers-by. This list, of course, does not take into account the asbestos toll, occupational cancer, vast majority of deaths that are one-offs, so... Just every year there's that number. Every person who is killed at work leaves behind a shattered family, a shattered community and, of course, extremely traumatised workmates. To date, this year, there have been 23 official workplace fatalities. I say official because if someone is killed in a road accident, in a truck, that's not counted in our toll. It's a road death, even though it was possibly a problem with the truck or because the truck driver was fatigued, doesn't count in our workplace fatalities. So 23 so far, and we're coming up to the most dangerous time of the year where it's not uncommon, unfortunately, to have three or four deaths in December alone. The union movement has again identified that that there is a gap in our laws because our laws do not provide real justice when a worker is killed. They fail to send the right message to employers about the seriousness of corporate negligence which results in the death of a worker. The penalties do not reflect the seriousness of when a worker is killed. And we've got some examples. I don't know that I'll go through all of them. But in 2005, Amcor Packaging was fined $360,000 after a worker was killed. It actually cost them more than $700,000 to guard the machine that killed that worker. Now, how can it be the fine is actually less than what it would have cost them to fix the problem? It's not logical. In 2014, Melbourne Water Corporation was convicted over corporate negligence. A young man, a man, fell through a hole, missing a grate, and was drowned in the returned activated sludge channel. What Melbourne Corporation had failed to do was to ensure that the grates were bolted down. A simple safety solution that would have cost a handful of dollars to fix, yet a worker was killed. They were fined just $400,000. Also in 2014, a young man, 22-year-old Scott Gamble, was killed when a branch he was working on hit a power line. The company he worked for, Redback Tree Services, knew about the power lines as they were noted when the job was quoted. The company wrote up their safe work method statement, which identified that contact with the power lines was a risk factor. However, what the safe work method statement didn't do was actually specify what controls needed to be implemented to ensure that this risk did not eventuate. And so as a result, all they were relying on was the ability of their workers to just avoid them somehow. Well, in this case, it it happened and he was killed. They were fined $150,000. It just doesn't make sense to us. I I teach health and safety reps all the time and they say, well, if the employer breaks the law, if they actually don't comply with their duties under the Act, that's the law, isn't it? And I say, yes, 
So, so that, that way they'll, they'll be fined or they might go to jail. And I say, no, it doesn't happen. Because our regulator picks and chooses who they prosecute. And yes, they will prosecute when there's a fatality if they believe that there's going to be a good chance of winning that prosecution. But at the moment, there is very little chance that they will go to jail. Yet if someone speeds on the road and kills someone, they'll go to jail. If someone is a bit drunk and gets in a fight and with a king hit kills someone, that person will go to jail. So the society does know that killing people is very serious, even if you actually don't mean to do it. It is serious enough to go to jail. That sends the right message to the community. It sends the right message that speeding and drinking and getting in fights can lead to serious consequences. And if it does the person goes to jail. But if employers fail in their fundamental duty of care to their employees, they barely get a slap on the wrist. A big corporation, what's $400,000 to a big corporation? It doesn't have to be this way. The UK has industrial manslaughter legislation. They have locked up business owners when people have been killed. And there have been a few cases recently. In Queensland, just last year, they implemented legislation. Now, personally, and at Trades Hall, we think there are some problems with the Queensland legislation, so we're going for something better. So Trades Hall, we actually had a bit of a campaign way back, and we almost, almost got it. It was two decades ago. So why didn't we get it? Now, in 1999, the Labor Party released its policy platform, Fairer, Safer, More Secure, More Productive, The Future of Victorian Workplaces. This contained a commitment to introducing industrial manslaughter. Now, unexpectedly, perhaps, Brax won the election. And though not considered to be particularly union-friendly at the time, because the industrial manslaughter legislation was in their platform, they did it. They went through. And on the 22nd of November in 2001, the Attorney-General tabled the Crimes, Workplace, Deaths, Serious Injuries Bill in the Legislative Assembly. On the 14th of May, an amended bill was passed... But on the 29th of May, the bill is rejected by the council. So we got this close. They didn't have the numbers. Somehow, though, when the next policy platform was developed, industrial manslaughter was no longer there. The ALP's industrial policy committee, industrial affairs policy committee, didn't keep it in. Who knows? Reasons. I asked around when we were developing our campaign for this year and got a few answers. Well, maybe... Maybe because Martin Kingham wasn't there anymore. Martin was the secretary of the... CFMEU, and he was a passionate supporter for it. He was no longer on the committee, so there was no one really arguing for it. Or maybe it was, and I apologise if there's anyone here from the SDA, maybe it was because the SDA had the numbers on the committee, so they weren't as committed, perhaps. Or maybe that the Trades Hall Council wasn't in the loop anymore, or whatever. But whatever the reasons were, it was no longer there. Now, that's a real shame because on the 30th of November in 2002, the Brax Labor government was returned with a record majority and they had the numbers in both Houses of Parliament. And yet, early in 2003, the government announces it will not reintroduce the bill. So, in that year, though, what the government did commit to do is to review the Health and Safety Act. And Chris Maxwell, QC, conducted independent review... And the new Act did contain a new duty. Maybe it was a light consolation prize. The duty to not recklessly endanger persons at workplaces. And that does have a prison sentence attached. But guess what? It hasn't worked. Not one employer has gone to jail. And in fact, we also saw that the regulator was starting to use that particular duty against individual workers, which was not the intention. 
part of the reason is the way it's written, the regulator has to show that this person who is the employer was intentionally negligent and intentionally and knew that his negligence was probably going to end up in a fatality. So that's why it hasn't worked. Now this time, things at the hall are very, very different. And I can say, you know, I've been there, God, I don't know, 18 years or something, so I've seen things change a lot. Firstly, we've got a lot more young people and there's a lot, you know, the, the, the person who's in charge also has a different view of how we do things. The focus is really on campaigns and campaigning. The emphasis is on winning hearts and minds. And so you don't just talk to people and get stuff out. You actually encourage them to come in and take actions. So there's suddenly more and more people doing that. In health and safety, we developed a network and developed this campaign kit, Industrial Manslaughter Action Kit, for workers and health and safety reps to take back to their workplaces, to speak to people so that people out there started to understand what the issue was. So industrial manslaughter became one of those issues that we actually went out and talked to people about. Now, for industrial manslaughter in particular, I also have to acknowledge the work of the families of the two young men, Charlie Halkins and Jack Brownlee, who were killed in what appears to me to be a classic example of negligence. They were killed in a trench near Ballarat in 2017. Now, trenches, there's so much regulation. They should be shored. There should all be... These two young men were caught in there. One died on the spot, one died in hospital. These families, Lana Pormi and the other young man's parents, they went to the premiere. They appeared in a film that Trades Hall did. They appeared on TV. They had their newspaper articles. They said that industrial manslaughter was so important that they were certainly not going to vote for the Liberals who wouldn't commit. Vote for anyone you like. The Greens had committed. Labor Party's committed. We even talked to the Socialist Party. They committed. So... Um, Basically, we had a huge success. So now we're keeping them to their commitment. These commitments were made again on the night of the election by the Premier. We made sure that we got commitments from the other parties. Now, we don't know what will happen in the upper house because it looks like a bit of a dog's breakfast. But the difference, I think, is that we didn't just work with the political parties. There is a huge groundswell of people in the community who understand what we mean by industrial manslaughter. And so I think that this time... We've won the argument. We've won the argument in the broader community. Many more people understand it. I think it's going to be a lot harder for government not to pr- progress because of all the work that we did. So thank you. That's it for Stick Together today. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Dr Alison Barnes and Renata Marcelina for being part of the program today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network, and we're podcast. Uh, and it's available at 3cr.org.au or on, on iTunes. Uh, you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03-9419-8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Until next time, stick together. Stick together.